This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Dark skies over Pearl Harbor. I dare say today might be the most awkward December 7th ceremony ever in its 80-year history. Federal and state lawmakers are calling for a pause on the operations of the Red Hill facility. Some are calling for the defueling of the World War II-era military facilities. It comes as relations between the Navy and the state are at its shakiest in the decades following the bombing of Pearl Harbor. For the second time in a week, Hawaii's congressional delegation is calling on the governor uh, to ask President Biden to declare an emergency because of fuel found in tap water. It's also asking the Environmental Protection Agency to intervene. And if that wasn't enough, House lawmakers are asking for the decommissioning of Red Hill. We talked to House Speaker Scott Psyche and Representatives Aaron Johansson and Linda Ichiyama this morning. The House members feel very strongly um, that we are now in an emergency situation and Decisive action has to be taken. Public health and safety is our top concern, and we all represent constituents who are very, very worried and very concerned about what is unfolding at Red Hill. Representative Johansson, what are you hearing from your constituents? It's a mixture of frustration, anger, as the Army and the Navy have uh, repatriated folks to hotel accommodations. I think it's gotten a little bit better for folks on the ground because they can bathe their children and they can trust what's coming out of the tap. So... As as more and more people are essentially evacuated from the military housing areas that are affected, Um, the conditions on the ground have gotten slightly better. But I think there's still a lot of anxiety and a lot of long-term concern um, and just a lot of frustration uh, that this situation has unfolded. And Representative uh, Ichiyama, uh, what about you? I don't know if you've been able to uh, listen in on those town hall meetings. I have. Most of my district is on the Board of Water Supply System, thankfully. But I think everybody's main concern is what happens if any of the fuel somehow travels to the Halava shaft and what implications does that have for the rest of Oahu? Speaker Psyche, talk about the uh, actions that we've seen of late, you know, between the uh, congressional delegation uh, and the governor on this issue. What's really important now is that we all have to be on the same page, whether we're at the federal, state, or county level. We all have to be acting in concert. And I think that that is one of the roles that the governor needs to play in this situation. He needs to bring all of the affected parties together so that we have a common strategy and approach to how we're going to deal with this. I think what's happening now, unfortunately, is that uh, different people are, are acting on their own. And that's to be expected. But at some point, everybody has to be brought together because we need to solve, we need to solve this together. Well, for the second time in, I think, a week, Hawaii's the congressional delegation is urging the governor to ask President Biden to declare an emergency here. Do you agree with that? I absolutely agree that the governor needs to be decisive and needs to take action. This is not a situation, as I said, we are in an emergency. and This is not a situation where we have the luxury to overanalyze the, the, the problems that we're facing. We need to be decisive and we need to take swift action. And the governor needs to, he needs to immediately request an emergency, uh, emergency declaration from the president. Uh, Representative uh, Johansson, I don't know, what else are you hearing? Well, I've been at a few of those town halls in person, so I I can tell you it's heartbreaking um, to hear the stories. Um, uh, You know, uh, the Army honestly seems to be handling um, its members uh, and serving them uh, perhaps better than the Navy. You can tell the difference. um, The difference is palpable in the town halls and how the different constituents are feeling uh, based on sort of where they're living. Um, and when I was at 
71 this past weekend, there was a whole lot more um, thanks to the Army, and I'm not sure if it's because the Army's mentality is a little bit more like we're the first into battle. We're used to immediately sort of fixing and triaging. Um, uh, I haven't had, I haven't seen that same kind of um, uh, initial first fruits of relief um, in some of sentiment in some of the Navy town halls. Um, and so, I mean, I think, but I think why the um, the declaration of an emergency and a disaster is necessary because as we move to sort of next steps, one of the things we continually hear from our constituents is the ability um, to get reimbursed for some of the costs that they had to front, uh, how to get recompensed for you know damaged property or appliances that need to be replaced, um, and a lot of that hinges on insurance claims, right? And and those insurance claims often need sort of this declaration um, in order to sort of serve as, as the catalyst for being able uh, to pay out these claims. And so, um, yeah, the, the, the conversation continues to explore not just the here and now of the providing of water, hygiene facilities, you know, uh, temporary lodging and food, but also sort of, you know, what comes next so that people um, can get back to their normal lives, uh, you know, assuming that the military is able um, to fix their waters. You know, we continue to hear the military say that they will do better. They are trying to be more transparent and keep the Board of Water Supply and the Department of Health in uh, in the loop. But it seems like they are taking action and making decisions, but not letting the regulators know until after the fact. I would wholeheartedly agree with that assessment. I mean, I think the coordination um, has been uh, completely lacking, and that's symptomatic of uh, one of the long-standing problems of you know, these these past few years, right? There's a instead of a we're in this together. It's sort of a this is our facility, but both the Board of Water Supply and the Department of Health both um, echoed sort of the same um, complaints and concerns of a lack of not just lack of coordination, but I think everybody this situation needs to be approached in a proactive manner um, and you know a proactive manner means a whole lot of collaboration, a whole lot of data sharing, a whole lot of, um, you know, the, the evidence from samples and tests, etc. Um, and that, quite frankly, has been just completely lacking. And, you know, unfortunately, nothing exposes that more than a crisis. Um, but uh, I still see that same um, sort of sometimes unilaterally acting um, and then Board of Water Supply and the Department of Health are left to sort of catch up or they read it in the news for themselves. And that's, that's unacceptable. You know, we had the situation where the residents of Foster Village and Aliumanu complained about uh, fumes in the air. What were your concerns when you heard about that situation? Those uh, were some of my constituents because I, I represent Foster Village and parts of Aliumanu and I represent Aliumanu Military Reservation. And that should have been, you know, I mean, Yet another warning flag, but you know, really disturbing to read in the Star Advertiser that perhaps there were low-level tests before a petroleum. I mean, the the truth, um, as I see it, and I think many of the members of the House probably see it this way as well, which is why it's enshrined in the letter, uh, is just that you don't really have to be a hydrologist or an engineer um, to see that the Navy doesn't understand problem enough to control it or predict it or preempt future issues. And I think this letter from the House is 
a testament to the fact that you know, the vast majority of the House of Representatives has lost confidence in the military's ability um, uh, you know, to, to assure um, well, not just the safety of the facility and the working of it properly, but also um, the safety of the surrounding community, particularly in terms of water. And you know, it begs the question of whether the state can trust future assurances. And that's why I think this letter is more strongly calling for um, a, a plan to actually decommission it and move it away from Yeah, I believe uh, some of those samples were taken from the uh, monitoring wells. But if those were supposed to be sentinel wells, you know, early, early warnings, why are we just hearing about it after the fact, way after the fact? Representative Ichiyama, I don't know, you, you want to add anything there? Well, I think what's been particularly troubling for me is the Saturday letter from Department of Health to the Navy requesting or actually demanding that the Navy immediately turn over test result uh, analysis. And that's very concerning that as the state regulator, that they have to send a formal letter to the Navy to demand that information when the Navy should be producing it already and it should be coming over in real time. I think that's really, to me, was an indicator of a breakdown between the lines of communication. And have you all visited the site? Yes. Multiple times. And the takeaway in light of uh, the situation, House Speaker? The takeaway for me is that if the federal government and the military believe that Hawaii plays a vital role in securing the military and the national national security, then it, makes, it needs to make some hard decisions about how it wants to uh, handle this uh, this Red Hill situation and other 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 military related issues in Hawaii. Uh, it, it's time for it's, it's time for the military to begin to make those hard decisions. It's rather ironic that this comes down on December seventh. Absolutely, it's it's very it's very ironic, and uh, um, I I just hope that that all of the parties at the federal, state, and county level will be at a point where we can work together to to solve this to solve this problem. You've been hearing from House Speaker Scott Psyche, Democratic Representatives Aaron Johansson, and Representative Linda Ichiyama, who represent the areas affected by the petroleum in the tap water. water crisis has drawn the ire of the public across the island, with many calling for the closure of the Navy's Red Hill bulk fuel storage facility. It prompted one listener to leave this comment on our talkback line. My name is Kevin O'Leary. I'm calling from Honolulu, Kalihi. My comment is our congressional delegation, our governor, and our mayor have called for the operations at Red Hill to shut down. They have a wrong-headed approach. We've been trying to drain those tanks, to drain the tanks, is the deal. Shutting it down doesn't mean anything. The fuel is still sitting there. The military can do it, pull in some tankers into Pearl Harbor, which is how they got the fuel up there in the first place, drain the tanks into the tankers, then do what they will with the fuel. But draining the tanks, removing the fuel from above our aquifer, that's the only solution to this problem. Shutting down the operations is meaningless. Thank you.
All right. Thanks so much. But moving fuel out of the Red Hill storage facility, it's easier said than done. The process could cost billions of dollars and take decades. That is the subject of today's reality check. We have reporter Anita Hofschneider on the line. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So your story today uh, on Civil Beat uh, talks about the price tag. Yeah, and I think, you know, what's, what's important to recognize is a lot of people might be hearing about these jet fuel tanks at Red Hill for the first time this week and last week. But this has actually been a long, ongoing issue where environmental activists in Hawaii, as well as the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, have been raising the alarm about this jet fuel facility um, for years and years and really pushing the Navy to try to do a better job of making sure that the tanks uh, would not leak after a major spill in 2014 that involved 27,000 gallons of jet fuel. And so, um, you know, this actual question of, well, could we move the fuel? Where could it go? This is something that has been studied and and previously discussed. So uh, what did that study that you looked at uh, say? Sure. So it was actually a 2018 analysis that reviewed a dozen different locations on Oahu. um, And it was interesting. Like they included Hickam Field, the Navy Marine Golf Course, um, Salt Lake District Park, adjacent to Fort Shafter, adjacent to Tripler Army Medical Center, and so forth. And what the analysis concluded was that the the preferable, the preferred location was uh, Kapukaki, which is just uphill of the existing location. And so the Honolulu Board of Water Supply wasn't quite happy with this um, conclusion, they felt like the methodology and the proposals kind of made it so that this relocation alternative would be so prohibitively costly that it wouldn't be, um, you know, an option. And what it was extremely expensive in this analysis. What they found was that, you know, if we wanted to, as the Navy wanted to build a whole new jet fuel facility, and so right now there are 20 tanks underground that hold 250 million gallons of jet fuel, um, if they wanted to build 40 tanks to hold the equivalent amount of jet fuel, it would take um, a, between $4 billion and $10 billion to build all of those tanks, and it would take decades and decades, and so might not be finished until September t- uh, 2051. So the conclusion, you know, was that that was, you know, the most the safest but most expensive alternative, and instead the Navy decided to go with the cheapest alternative, which was you know uh, improving and strengthening the existing tanks where they are. Yeah, well, this facility is 80 years old. You know, they they do like uh, the current location because it's gravity fed. You know, um, they use pipelines that go down to the harbor, uh, but all that fuel jets. I mean, uh, uh, pr- provides jet fuel to, uh, you know, our armed armed forces, you know, our Coast Guard, you know, all the ships that come in, all the planes that fly. uh, But it is massive. Definitely massive. And, you know, a lot of political leaders are asking, what will it take to move it? And is there something in between building an entirely new jet fuel facility? And so that's what's being explored now. So I spoke with um, Congressman Kahele's office, who said that um, they had heard from the Navy that um, shutting down the Red Hill storage facility would involve a logistics division of the Department of Defense called DLI Energy, contracting with tankers to go to Pearl Harbor to receive the fuel 
And they said that, you know, the, the length of time it would take to remove the fuel would depend on how long it took to contract those tankers, position and sequence them, and upload the fuel to each of them. And then they would have to find a location for storing the fuel um, and said that, you know, that could include leasing commercial space, keeping the fuel afloat in the ocean, or placing the fuel in an alternate defense fuel support point. Um, but that would assume that space would be available. Um, and so there are definitely a lot of different options that are currently being considered that are not, you know, building an entirely new facility. And, you know, we did hear from Lieutenant uh, Governor Josh Green, who talked to Par Hawaii last week. Uh, the company confirmed that it has the capacity to at least handle about a third of the fuel. I mean, not all the tanks, the 20 tanks are active. There are some that are empty just for regular maintenance. And there are some people that say we don't really need that amount. Things have changed. Uh, but yeah, I guess we'll see what the Navy says. You know. Yeah, I, I, I spoke with Par Hawaii as well, and they said that they're in conversation with the Navy and they could hold 84 million gallons. Fuel. And so it seems like this, you know, this um, issue that's been considered for years, you know, has shifted into a crisis mode. And now all hands are on deck to figure out, you know, what would be the, um, you know, what are the practical options for being able to get the fuel out of there if that's the um, the way we want to go. And I think that I, I will say that although Hawaii's political leaders have been calling for this, the Navy hasn't committed to this. And during a uh, meeting yesterday, um, one uh, member of Navy's leadership said that, you know, they are considering all options, but they didn't say, you know, yes, that they would be relocating the fuel. Yeah, I, I think uh, the lieutenant governor said that the military likes to control, you know, its facilities and by contracting out, you know, that they relinquish some of that control. So it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. Definitely. I'm sure we'll be following it really closely. All right. Well, thanks so much, Anita. Thank you for having me. That was reporter Anita Hofschneider with today's Reality Check. Read her story online at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, committed to offering the community inspiration and learning through art and education. Learn more about gift memberships at honolulumuseum.org slash join dash give. Comprehensive disease surveillance allowed South Africa to first identify the COVID Omicron variant, but they haven't had as much success with vaccination efforts. Until everyone is vaccinated, everyone will continue to be at risk. I'm Magna Chakrabarty. We'll take a close look at South Africa and the pandemic. That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2, following the world. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Mid-Pacific Institute's School of the Arts, offering intensive and immersive arts training, accepting applications for the 2022-2023 school year, midpac.edu. This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Now it's time for your Backyard Quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, 
umulokai, ulanai, umaui, ukahuulabe, uhavai. Today we mark the 80th anniversary of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we're thinking about the voice who brought the news of the attack to Hawaii radio listeners. Some accounts of that day say that many people weren't sure what was going on, including many of those within sight of the aerial bombardment. But that changed when they heard the voice on KGMB radio say, Attention, this is no exercise. The Japanese are attacking Pearl Harbor. All Army, Navy, and Marine personnel to report to duty. He added, Some people think this is a maneuver. This is not a maneuver. It's the real McCoy. After the attack, he went on to a career with CBS Radio News during the war and was the only radio reporter to witness the Japanese surrender on the deck of the USS Missouri on September 2, 1945. He was the personal choice of Admiral Chester Nimitz that day. He said, Nimitz knew I'd been in at the start, and Nimitz wanted me to see the finish. The popular radio announcer was also the longtime host of the music program, Hawaii Calls, and this morning, we're looking for his name. Call 808-941-3689 or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. If you know the answer, the first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Nareed Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits providing senior rental housing for veterans in the islands, such as EAH Housing. NareedHawaii.com. The bill to allow the city and county to hike the hotel room tax by 3% and use some of what's collected for our very expensive rail project is just a signature away from becoming law. Honolulu's Mayor Rick Blangiardi is expected to sign it soon. We talked to Lori Kahikina, Interim Executive Director of HART, yesterday afternoon to get a handle on the new timeline for meeting with federal transit authority officials to present its new recovery plan. The train is Hawaii's most expensive public works project ever at more than $12 billion. Here's Kahikina. We're so thankful that the administration and city council and, of course, the support of our board, that we were considered to get 1% for the first two years and 1.5% in perpetuity. And what I presented to city council was that we believe we have enough funds right now to get to Chinatown and a little bit past. With that TAT, it would help us get to downtown, which is a much more functional and viable um, pausing, if if I may, versus Chinatown because of the bus routes that are already in existence in the downtown area. So that's a good thing for us with that that TAT. Regarding a future trip to Washington, D.C., yes, I would like to do that, you know, I've never met Nuria, the new administrator, and it would be good if Mayor and I could go up. There is a conference in the March time frame in Washington, D.C., the legislative conference. And so I'm trying to see if maybe Mayor and I can set up a meeting with Nuria at that point. 
Well, initially, you folks were thinking you would go at the end of this year. Yes, we wanted to do that, but the restrictions with travel and actually in-person meetings at the federal level were, were still, in, in fact, they still are in place. I think they start to let up next year, January, but that's the reason we couldn't physically go to meet with her. And so where are we at on our recovery plan? When Rick and I first came in earlier this year, our goal was to get something to them before the end of the year. But as our discussions were ongoing with FTA, their recommendation was, you know, there's a lot of moving pieces that need to be completed before you give us an approvable recovery plan. So they said the soonest we think you could get us something would be April. They wanted us to do a peer review, an independent cost and schedule analysis. They wanted to get us to get our project management plans updated. So those are about 25 subplans to that. So we've done those things. And now it's a matter of financially, where are we able to get to? And so that discussion needs to be done. But our goal is still in April timeframe to get them something. Okay. And then we've heard a lot about, you know, stopping at Middle Street Yes. Uh, from former board members, yes. uh, from members of the community. Our full funding grant agreement and managing director testified to this at several council meetings when we were discussing the TAT that the contract with the federal government, and he reminded the council members that the contract is with the city. It's not hard. It's with the city and the FTA. And that contract states we need to get all the way to Ala Moana. And so if we stop short, there would have to be a discussion with FTA for that. And regarding Middle Street, that is absolutely not going to work. First of all, as I mentioned earlier, we do have the funds to get past Middle Street. We probably can't have enough to get to downtown right now. But Middle Street just will not work. The ridership is not there compared to Alamoana or even downtown. You're missing all of the key riders along Dillingham. There's no way, um, Director Morton from DTS has, he could speak much more um, eloquently on this topic than me, but going down on Middle Street, there's no way for the buses heading east to turn left into that existing um, Middle Street Transit Center. But more importantly, if we can somehow get the riders off of the rail onto the bus at Middle Street, they're just going to be sitting in that same traffic on Dillingham so it is key that we get past Dillingham. You know, the next best location from Ala Moana is downtown, according to DTS, because they have a robust bus system there already. And where are we at with Dillingham and the relocation of the utilities? Oh, so Dillingham, we are in the process of getting 100% designs done. The goal is um, about the second quarter of next year and to get it all approved again, like we did for the areas two through six, that's Evoli to Alamoana, get the city approvals, third party approvals, and then we go out to bid about summer time frame next year and we would like to award before the end of next year on Dillingham. And uh, things are, are moving with the property owners? As far as acquisitions? Yes. We are working very closely. The two big ones, because we're doing that Malka shift, is Kamehameha Schools and UH. So we're working very closely with them. The other day, I was driving along the freeway and happened to see a, a car go by, a rail a car. Oh, a train go by? Yes. And, Terrific. Uh, uh, just was wondering then, uh, as far as working out the details on the fix with the, uh, with the contractor. On the wheel rail interface? Yes. 
So what was holding us up we, at first, we, were, we hired TTCI to do an analysis on what could be a temporary fix. And they came back with, we could fill the gap void with a weld. And that way, the weld allows us to start trial running sooner because you could use either the thinner or the thicker wheels simultaneously. Because to change out all of the wheels, it's going to take about a year, year and a half. We don't want to delay any further than we have to. So by doing that weld, we can use either one until they're all completely replaced. All the wheels are replaced. But the good news was we do not have to swap out the tracks. The wheels is a quicker and cheaper option. Then the next problem was we couldn't get any certified licensed, Hawaii licensed contractors that could do manganese welding. welding. Yes, Mm -hmm. so two weeks ago, God bless the DCCA, we presented to them asking for an exemption and they granted us one, a conditional one, meaning the exemption is only good until I think it's June or July of next year. And if we bring in a mainland contractor, after we sign the contract with them, they have 60 days to apply for a Hawaii license. So we're moving. We're moving quickly on this. I think, I believe we have bidders that are going to be submitting their packages by this Friday. And if we can get that work done, that would, that would speed things up for us. Where are we at with the, the stadium opening component? Yeah. Oh, okay. So um, I'm glad you, you touched on the wheels, wheel rail interface. That's the first step. We need to get the well done. And then Hitachi has quite a bit of pre-testing that needs to be done. You're talking over 2,000 pre-tests, and they're starting to wrap that up. We're hoping by January, February timeframe they'll be complete. We get the welding done, we get Hitachi's pre-testing done, and then we go into trial running. And trial running is a full 90 days without any glitches or issues. If there is an issue, the clock starts all over. So assuming all the stars line up, we get the welding done, Hitachi gets the pre-testing done, the 90 days of trial running is, is okay. The soonest we could possibly get it over to the city is probably um, July, June, July, of, of next year, and then um, mayor and DTS need to decide if they're actually going to open up for revenue service. Okay, but it would go from Kapolei to the stadium. Correct. Any issues with the different proposals that we're hearing about uh, the stadium entertainment center and, and how that works with rail? I mean, I know they're saying let's, let's build more housing and we can get more of a base of riders for rail. That would be great. But as far as I know, no issues that I've heard of. And and as far as like any construction that they may do or demolition, that shouldn't impact? It should not, should not impact us at all. I did also happen to drive out more toward Pearl City side. I just was worried about vandalism. Oh, you and me both. <laughs> so, I mean, we it was in the news, right, uh, a couple of months ago, how we had the break-ins of the those teenagers. So we did step up. Hitachi stepped up security. Um, the contractor who is still overseeing the stations has stepped up security also. But it is an issue. And, and once we hand it over to the city and DTS, it's going to be an ongoing issue. I worried in the banana patch area, there are a lot of uh, homeless encampments. Right. And I, I just worry about that facility being so uh, empty for so long. That is a valid, valid concern. I think my um, PI team did send photos a couple of weeks ago that there were homeless living, you know, by the on the opening. So it's going to be an ongoing issue.
Where are we at with the uh, talks with general growth, Howard Hughes, on uh, acquisition of property? Not too much with general growth right now and Howard Hughes. I know there were some talks earlier with the judge, but it's still we're still ongoing in litigation. I think the court hearing is has been pushed off till next year just because of COVID. They weren't doing in-person court hearings, so it's been delayed a bit. What else do you want to talk about? My contract? Oh, yes. Where are you at with that? The board met and voted on the final language for my contract. So I signed it when I came back from vacation last week, and I believe it's gone to board chair, and she's going to sign it. So it becomes effective the beginning of next year, January 1, and it's two years with the third year automatic extension unless the board decides not to. And that is at a salary, her current salary of $275,000. That was Hart's Lori Kaikina with the latest timeline for Honolulu's rail project. My goodness, Brexit. Will there be a problem that we've not foreseen with the customs paperwork? You know, some tiny indiscretion that we haven't noticed. Brexit's still a thing, you know. I'm Kai Rizdal, our honey merchant at London's Borough Market. Next time on Marketplace. Beginning this evening at 6, following All Things Considered. Legislative session is a little more than a month away. Budget briefings will begin after the holidays. The watchdog groups, the League of Women Voters and Common Cause, will have their eyes on what lawmakers in the Senate and House do when it comes to the political process and bill hearings. A recent Hawaii Supreme Court decision found that the gut and replace process was unconstitutional. The issue will be the subject of a webinar this Thursday. We invited Brian Blatt with the Civil Beat Law Center, who brought the suit to court, and Sandy Ma, Executive Director of Common Cause. We start off highlighting the Rusty Scalpel Awards, an effort to draw attention to the most egregious bills that were gutted during the political process and did not get the required three public hearings. So the Rusty Scalpel Award is an award that the League of Women Voters of Hawaii and Common Cause of Hawaii issue every year after the end of the state legislative session to the most egregious gut-and-replace bill that we see emerge from the state legislature. And we just want to highlight a bill that has gone through the gut-and-replace process and to show that such a practice does occur and to highlight something that has been transformed so radically and in violation of our state constitution. And so we've been doing this for the past seven or eight years, just to hope that we get the legislators' attention and the public's attention and to highlight a practice that violates the state constitution and hope it changes some legislators' minds so that they do not do this again (laughs) in the next session. Well, Brian, I don't know, can you give us like a recent example um, I think one of the most recent examples of the Rusty Scalpel was the TAT bill. I think that was on last year's award. And that one was for a variety of reasons with respect to why it was a problem under the Constitution. It was not just three readings, which was the issue that was addressed in the recent Hawaii Supreme Court case, but also other issues related to improper title and single subject and, and other things. So there's there are a lot of different framework issues that 
the Constitution sets forth for how legislation should be enacted. And Sandy, you mentioned another one, I think you said the Stadium Authority was another awardee. Correct. I believe that was awarded at the end of the 2019 legislative session. That bill created the Stadium Authority and that bill did not get three readings. And so, yes, that received the Rusty Scalpel Award in 2019 as well. And the concern there then is the impact that it has on state taxpayers because a lot of money's involved with that redevelopment? Well, it wasn't just the impact on state taxpayers going into the future. It was that is such a major bill affecting so many people. It had such a large financial impact on the state itself. And it did not have this robust debate in the legislature. It was not a reasoned decision-making, a thorough decision-making, and did not have the necessary public input because it went through this gun-replace process. The Constitution sets forth a process by which laws are enacted in our state, and there's a framework. There are various guidelines for how that should be done so that there is that robust debate that Sandy's talking about, so that there's notice to the public and to the legislators even as to what the bill is about and as it moves through the system, making sure that it doesn't radically change in some way. And so what you see in the Constitution is that there are things like the bill has to have a title. That title, the purpose of that is to make sure that the title reflects and gives enough information so that the public knows what the bill is kind of going to be about. The bill has to have a single subject. It can't be about a whole bunch of things. That's an issue with respect to notice, but it's also an issue with respect to people throwing a whole bunch of stuff into the same bill and, you know, trying to get something passed just because the bill is moving forward, but not because the bill has the full support of the legislature and the people. Yeah, we've heard the term Franken-bill. Yes. So a little bit of this, a little bit of that. Exactly. Right. So under the Constitution, that's a single subject issue. And then there's the question, which was the issue in the Hawaii Supreme Court case, which is three readings. And that's that any law that passes has to be read in each house, the House and the Senate, three times on different days to make sure that there's some discussion in a informed and deliberate way before we pass a law of the state of Hawaii. Right, because process is important. For sure. If we don't have a robust process, then any law could pass and then it could be a criminal law, it could be anything, and that is going to affect the way that we interact with our government and with each other on a day-to-day basis. What was your reaction when you found out that the Supreme Court you know, went in your favor? Because <laughs> it's been seven years, right? So the, the law that was challenged was in 2018, and then the argument before the Hawaii Supreme Court was 2020. And I was happily surprised, right? I mean, I think, of course, we wouldn't have brought the case if we didn't think that it was correct legal principle, but there are reasonable differences in interpretation that could have been brought, and I was happy to see that the Hawaii Supreme Court majority agreed with our position. And it was a split decision, and Chief Justice Rechtenwald went with the minority. Yes. Did that surprise you? Um... That there was a difference of opinion? No, it didn't surprise me. You know, I do think that the legislature and the state presented a position that, again, was reasonable. And Sandy, so, you know, we've got this decision. Everybody's looking to January when session starts. We're not sure how the lawmakers are going to react to this decision because, you know, they've pretty much argued that 
there's a separation of different branches and this was an overreach and that the lawmakers should be able to have that flexibility, whether it's a bill to deal with the lava inundation like we saw on the Big Island or flooding on Kauai. You know, we've heard those arguments. We look to this next session as we've looked to all the sessions that the legislators will act in the public interest in carrying out their duties. They swear oath to the Constitution and they understand the separation of powers and the Supreme Court has spoken as to what the Hawaii State Constitution means and they will follow the Supreme Court's directive. You know, we firmly believe, Common Cause Hawaii firmly believes that elected officials of our state respect the Supreme Court's decision and want to follow the Hawaii State Supreme Court and the uh, Supreme Court and the Constitution, in our opinion. So I, I think they will do the right thing and follow the, the decisions of this opinion. Okay, so she's she's an optimist. <laughs> <laughs> Brian, I don't know. Uh, I imagine, though, you know, when the lawmakers say, well, we need some flexibility for things that come up. What, what are their other tools in the toolbox to deal with that? Well, I think they have a lot of flexibility, and that was part of our position when we were arguing this in court, was that the legislature has a lot of flexibility. It, what it was really doing in terms of this particular case, and in, in a lot of cases, is adhering strictly to their rules, their internal rules, but violating the Constitution. And so what we're asking for is essentially they follow the Constitution, and if you need to waive rules or like if there's if there's emergencies that you need to deal with there are a lot of options that they could follow in order to deal with special circumstances that arise it's really a question of how much notice does the public have to be able to deal with those issues when they come up rather than having something come up at the last minute and then no one no one in the public or even some legislators have a chance to provide input the bill that was challenged in this lawsuit was originally a recidivism bill, a little hard to pronounce with a mask on. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and it was very popular. There were no testimony against it. And when it went from the Senate and crossed over into the House, it was gutted and replaced. And so it was supported as its original form by the state agencies. And so when it was gutted and replaced, there was a little bit confusion by everyone involved. And so this is one of the bills which was universally supported and then gutted and replaced. There was nothing wrong with updating the building code, the bill that was inserted. But still, the recidivism bill was a, a highly popular bill in itself. At times, even public servants wonder why a bill was gutted and replaced when there was no opposition to it. And nobody likes surprises. <laughs> and they're, they're, they're left kind of scratching their heads like, okay, what just happened here? One thing that I think perhaps gets confused in the terminology and, and what we say when we use the term gut and replace and, and talking about this case in particular is that gut and replace is a really easy shorthand for a lot of different things, some of which are constitutional and some of which they're a problem. And so we shouldn't expect that you'll never see an instance in which a bill is gutted and replaced and, you know, and that's always going to be a problem. You know, the legislature can do that in certain instances and it's still constitutional. So don't expect the end of gut and replace as a general principle. And, you know, it's a lot more nuanced, right? When you, when you ask an attorney to talk about things, they're always going to come back and say there's a lot more to it than that. But, but I think that's what's important for people to realize is that 
focus on just the idea of trying to get involved in the process and making sure that there's notice and an opportunity for the public to really have a robust debate about legislation. That's the purpose. If folks are interested, you will be hosting a webinar. Common Cause is hosting a webinar next Thursday at 4. It's a public webinar. It's free. It's on Zoom. You could come on to our webpage to find out more about it www.commoncause/hawaii to find out more and to sign up for the webinar. Brian will be speaking. Tax Foundation of Hawaii will also be speaking. They filed a MECAS brief in the case. If you have any specific questions, Brian and Tom Yamachika will be happy to answer questions. Yes, we could talk about the prospective effects of this law. It is not retrospective, so uh, not every single gut and replace bill will be struck down. So I know that was a lot of questions that we received. So, yes. Okay. And so, uh, and then I guess it goes without saying, you will keep watching. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank I you. I appreciate your time. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. That was Brian Black with the Civil Beat Law Center, who successfully brought a suit to the Hawaii Supreme Court. We also heard from Sandy Ma, Executive Director of Common Cause. The webinar on the gut and replace process is set for Thursday, the day after tomorrow, from 4 to 5 p.m. Look for links on our website later today. And, you know, we did ask House Speaker Scott Psyche this morning about how the ruling will change things this session And he said this summer, before the ruling was handed down, he told his chairs that he would not advance bills that were gutted and replaced to get to the floor for a full vote. The Senate was still reviewing the ruling. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, celebrating 60 years in Hawaii, featuring Daikin Air Conditioners. Learn more about contractors who install Daikin products at CostcoHawaii.com. I'm Stephen Dubner. On the next Freakonomics Radio, the U.S. is home to seven of the world's 10 biggest companies. How did that happen? When it comes to venture capitalists, they aren't looking for small returns. And what's the first law of venture capital? My first law of venture capital is that all entrepreneurs lie. It's the ones who don't know they're lying that really get you into trouble. That's next time on Freakonomics Radio. Beginning this evening at 7, following Counterspin. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Zippy's Restaurants, offering breakfast, lunch, dinner, and desserts. Online ordering at zippies.com or by downloading the app. Today's Backyard Quiz, we look back to a sleepy Sunday morning in 1941 when the sound of aerial maneuvers was heard coming from Pearl Harbor. The story goes most people were unaware of what was happening until those listening to KGMB radio heard the announcer say the island was under attack. That voice belonged to a man who was born in Oregon in 1902. He relocated to Honolulu in 1928. Here he first worked as an auto salesman, and he played semi-professional football. During this time, he developed an interest in Hawaiian music, and then in 1935, 
became a producer for a radio show which showcased island music. Uh, you may remember it. It was entitled Hawaii Calls, and it ran for 37 years. He was a station manager at KGMB when he announced the bombing of Pearl Harbor. After the attack, he became a war reporter during World War II and broadcast the Japanese surrender from the deck of the USS Missouri in September of 1945. He served in both the state and House Senate in the 1950s and retired from broadcasting in 1972 before passing away in 1977. Many people with firsthand memories of Pearl Harbor Day remember that morning's broadcast and the voice of Webley Edwards, the answer to today's Backyard Quiz. And congratulations to our winner, Brian Conley from Maui. You got it right. And before we go, we wanted to share one more con comment in remembrance of Pearl Harbor Day that we received yesterday on our talkback line. Hi, my name is Colin Steinberger. I'm calling on behalf of the Lee family. Uh, my girlfriend's grandfather is Robert Lee, Bob Lee, uh, and he is 100 years old and one of the few remaining Pearl Harbor survivors uh, who will be uh, partaking in celebration tomorrow and he's uh, I just thought it'd be cool if you guys gave him a shout out on the uh, on the, the radio at some point in the next day or so, or today or tomorrow. Um, this is a very special time for him and the whole family. So again, his name is Robert Lee. He's from Monowili on Oahu, uh, and he's 100 years old. Thank you. Thank you for the call, Colin, and thank you, Robert Lee, and all the other veterans out there for your service. You can share your thoughts and stories with us via our talkback line. 808-792-8217 or send us an email to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org Well, that wraps it up for right now. Later today, we plan to sit down and talk one-on-one -on -one with Governor David Ige. We invite you to share your comments about this water crisis at Red Hill. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. You can also connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.